The theologian Robert Leitner has written that a good gospel presentation should include something about sin, something about the Savior, and something about the human responsibility that we have to exercise faith in the Savior. Something about sin, something about the Savior, and something about our human responsibility to exercise faith in that Savior. While Leitner's words are relatively easy to defend biblically, not all agree, particularly with Leitner's first point, that a good gospel presentation will say something about sin, something about the problem. Robert Schuller expressed his profound disagreement with the concept in an interview with Time magazine dated March 18, 1985. And I quote him here. He said, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ that, and under the banner of Christianity, that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to evangelism or to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, an unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. For men like Schuler, the essential problem for human beings is not sin. It's a lack of self-esteem. In fact, under this philosophy, Christ did not pay the penalty for sin at the cross. Rather, he died so that man could recover his lost self-esteem. In his book, Living Positively, One Day at a Time, Schuler went on to say, Jesus knew his worth. His success fed his self-esteem. He suffered the cross to sanctify his self-esteem and bore the cross to sanctify your self-esteem. And the cross will sanctify the ego trip! Exclamation mark. Well, if this is the case, what does it mean to be born again? Well, again, I quote Schuler. To be born again means that we must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image, from an inferiority to a position of self-esteem, from fear to love, from doubt to trust. How can this happen? It happens through a meeting with the ideal one. From my perspective, Schuler writes, I would expect such an ideal one to ignore or reject me because of my own shortcomings. But if, in fact, the ideal one receives me as his peer treats me as his equal, even though he knows who I am and what I've done and the good I've failed to do, then something profoundly deep will happen at the core of my personality. Then I will be born again. The biblical model, the biblical model of man's need is a bit more than simply a passive failure to do good. Our problem started with an active choice to do that which was contrary to the will of God. I quote Schuler, not to pick on him. He's essentially retired. There there wouldn't be much point there. And not to pick on those that he has mentored, whose fame and following have far exceeded his in some cases. And believe it or not, I have no problem with feeling good about yourself or positive self-esteem. I have no problem with that just so long as it's biblically based. But I will say dogmatically, as dogmatically as I can possibly say it, that man's problem is not essentially a lack of self-esteem. It runs far deeper than that. And that's the subject of Genesis chapter 3. And I'd invite you to turn there with me this morning to Genesis chapter 3. 
While you are turning there, I will remind you or let you know perhaps that Walter Kaiser, the noted Old Testament scholar, has said that an understanding of Genesis chapters 1 through 3 is essential to comprehending the rest of God's self-disclosure in the Scriptures. It's essential. These are important chapters, and particularly chapter 3. Particularly chapter 3. If we don't get this, if we don't get Genesis 3, we'll never fully appreciate anything else that God revealed. You'll never appreciate the cross. You'll never appreciate grace. If we don't understand Genesis 3, then John 3 loses its significance Without Genesis 3, Romans 1 through 3 loses its impact. Apart from comprehending Genesis 3, we will never come close. We will never come close to comprehending grace. Never even come close. If we really believe that our only problem is a lack of self-esteem and that Christ died to satisfy the ego trip, we will never appreciate grace. One of the most important concepts In the Bible, if we don't get Genesis 3, we will never really get anything else. A careful study and subsequent understanding of Genesis 3 is crucial to our spiritual lives. It's certainly one of the most important chapters in the Bible, perhaps even the most important chapter for explaining how we got into the mess that we are in. And in understanding God's grace in providing a way out of this problem. In previous studies, we've seen that to test man's obedience and free decision to follow the Creator, God placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden with the prohibition that Adam and Eve would not eat of its fruit. It was not that the fruit contained something that would be physically toxic to us, But it stood for the possibility of mankind's rebellion against the clear word of God. And that's going to be so important in our study today. Against the clear and precise word of God. In eating it, mankind would personally know, and that is he would experience, the opposite of all the good that he currently enjoyed. In our passage last week, we discovered that God intended that the man and the woman would be a spiritual, functional unity, walking in integrity and serving Him and keeping His commandments together as a spiritual unity. If this pattern prevailed, man would live and prosper under God's hand of blessing. The woman was created to be an Ezer, a helper for Adam in fulfilling the function of reverent service and worship of the Creator. She was to be a complement to Him for the purpose of doing good. And Ezra, and if you'll recall from our study last week, and Ezra is a good term. It's not a negative, demeaning term in any way. In fact, in other places in the Scriptures, the vast majority of the other places that that term is used, Ezra, it's used of God Himself. God is our Ezra. So the woman was created so that the, the man and the woman would be a functional unity to reverently serve and worship the Creator. And then now we come to chapter 3. Now the serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. While it is not stated in Genesis 3 explicitly, 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, confirms that the serpent is actually Satan. Uh, even in these first few terms, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field. We should immediately observe an immediate contrast between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, the man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed, meaning that they felt no threat of being taken advantage of. Their relationship was one of openness and trust. Innocence, if you prefer. Some people like that word. I'm not not sure that's the best one, but it was open. We also see, in immediate contrast to the openness of the man and the woman's relationship, that the serpent was more crafty than all of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had created. So you have innocence on one hand, and you got somebody that's crafty on the other hand, scheming, if you prefer, As we read this, as we read the end of chapter 2 going into the very first verse of chapter 3, we can sense that something very negative is about to happen. It's like in a movie. When you you see a woman perhaps coming home, driving up the driveway in her car, and she gets out of the car, and the music starts getting a little faster. You know how they, they play with your emotions in the movie, and you see the woman getting out of the car with her groceries, and she's walking into the house, and everything seems innocent and nice and right and normal. And then the camera pans to someone hiding in a hood with a knife in his hand in the kitchen. And your heart rate starts going up because you know those two things aren't going to work out well, are they? The woman is innocent. The, the woman is, in that sense, totally unaware that something terrible is about to happen. But we know it as the audience. And here we know that something really bad is about to happen. Because of the contrast between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty. Now, how long a period there was between the end of Genesis chapter 2 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, we simply don't know. We, we can't say anything about that with any, with any certainty at all, or anything approaching certainty. There is nothing in the grammar between chapter 2 and chapter 3 that would exclude what happens in chapter 3 as happening on the eighth day. At least there's nothing in the grammar that would stop that. Some have speculated that perhaps Adam and Eve were in the garden for a period of approximately a thousand years before chapter 3 begins. Now, everybody's guessing when it comes to this. And the reason they guess that is because we look at the end of human history and we see a thousand year millennial reign of Christ in perfect environment. So since we like to wrap things up into real nice numbers, we think, well, perhaps Adam and Eve were in perfect environment for a thousand years in the beginning. However, there's nothing in the text to support that. I simply don't know. But since Adam and Eve were created perfectly, and since Adam and Eve before the fall, before the fall were told to be fruitful and multiply, I'm just guessing if a thousand years had transpired, there would have been a bunch of little rugrats running around the Garden of Eden messing things up and making noise by that time. So if you, if you had to, if I was forced to guess, I'm forcing to guess, I, I would posit my guess as being there wasn't a whole lot of time between Genesis, the end of Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. But I, I don't think we, anybody ought to write a book about it. There's not enough data here. We should note, though, something that's very important, and that is the temptation will come in the form of disguise. Satan is the master of the counterfeit. 
He's the master of counterfeit miracles. He's the master of counterfeit love. He's the master of counterfeit worship. He's the master of counterfeit. And when he tempts us, he rarely will tempt us head on. He doesn't typically work that way. Normally, his temptations are oblique actions. They come at us when we're not expecting it. Who, who is going to succumb to temptation if that temptation comes with a sign on it? If you give in to this, your life is going to be miserable, I promise, sign God. No, nobody's going to give in to that. Satan, Satan parades around like an angel of light, like there's something good about him. The way he tempts us is, is to think, well, you know what? If I do that, maybe it is going to fulfill. Maybe it's going to complete my self-esteem. I'm going to really be happier. I know God said to do this, but, but really I think if I did this, I might actually be happier. And that's what he's going to do with Eve for all intents and purposes. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? That's an interesting rhetorical ploy. Help me out here, if you could. Satan is saying to you, help me out, if you would, please. I'm having trouble understanding this. Now, that's a bit pedantic. It's a rhetorical device. It's, uh, it irritates me when people use that on me, but maybe it does you too. But, this, but Eve fell for it. It's a good starting point for him to engage the woman in conversation. And it gave the woman an opportunity to justify herself and to defend God. So Satan opens the conversation. The serpent opens the conversation here. Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, from the, of the, from the fruit of the trees in the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it, nor touch it, lest you shall die. In the woman's response to the serpent, it becomes clear that the precision, the precision of the word of the Lord has not been retained. We, we studied that in Genesis chapter 2. She's not precise in how she handles God's word. Now, there was no written word at the time. It was an oral translation, oral transmission of the word. But she's not precise in how she handles it. That's a huge mistake on the woman's part then and it's a huge mistake when it happens now. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Imprecision when handling the word is a huge mistake. We are called upon to rightly divide the word of truth. We must carefully and thoughtfully study it. And we must carefully and thoughtfully apply it. Precision. Precision. This is not a game. It's not a parlor game. Precision, it's God's word. God has spoken. There is far too much casualness in the study, presentation, and the application of God's word today. And the damage that it is doing to the spiritual life of believers is incalculable. Imprecision. The damage is incalculable. If engineers and doctors practice their trade... The way that some people do Bible study, we would have bridges collapsing and people dying all over the place. But we expect an engineer to be precise. We expect him or her to, to put everything into it when they're designing that bridge or that building. What would happen if, if, a, if the winds came by from a hurricane and blew an apartment complex completely down? We would say something was wrong with that engineer. 
Somebody goes, wrong with that architect. Why weren't they precise? Why didn't they put something into it? Why didn't they care enough to do it thoughtfully and, 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 and carefully? We ought to hold those who teach the Word of God to the same standard. No matter who it is. And no matter what the setting. No matter who it is and no matter what the setting. There must be precision. Listen, no matter who it is and no matter what the setting, there must be precision or don't do it. Have the coffee, take the donuts, eat a kolache, and then talk about something else. You're better off doing that than handling the Word of God with imprecision. Because that's what got us into this mess in the first place. was imprecision and learning the Word, transmitting the Word, and applying the Word. God spoke into us, my friends. It's one of the greatest blessings that He ever gave us, so how dare we handle it in a sloppy manner? How dare we do this? I, I, I get worked up about it. I, I really do. I'd apologize for it, but I'm not going to apologize for it because it's serious business. This is what got us into the mess. We can't keep going right back into this same problem. Now, in her answer to the serpent, the woman expresses three areas of imprecision. You probably have already caught them, but let me mention them now briefly. First, she minimized the provision of the Lord. The Lord had said in the original mandate, you may freely eat. From any of these trees, you may freely eat. But Eve minimized it just a bit, saying, we may eat. It doesn't sound like a big thing, but it's imprecision. Second, and this is big, she added to the prohibition. The Lord said nothing about touching the tree. Nothing. But she said that God said, neither shall you touch it. Now, this happens all the time. And typically it happens with good intentions. But we add to what the Word of God says. And a lot of times we'll do it with our kids. You know, listen, you shouldn't do that. Well, why not? Because God doesn't want you to do that. Well, and that's fine, just as long as God doesn't want you to do it. But don't pull God into the mix unless you're really sure that that's what the text is saying. And you have a right to do that. She added to the Word of God. And then she said, God's the one that said it. It wasn't just, this is the way I'm understanding it. The way I understand this passage is that, you know. No, she's saying God said it. Imprecision. And finally, and this is important as well, she weakened the penalty for sin. Because when God said it originally, he had told them not to eat from that tree. Because if you do, you will surely die. Mot tamut. Mot tamut. Very strong in the Hebrew language means absolutely 100% for sure, you eat that fruit, you're going down. And you're going down hard, and it's going to be the worst thing that will ever happen in human history. It's going to be disastrous if you eat that fruit. That's mot tamut. That means you shall surely die. But Eve simply says, lest you die, which is a very weakened form of that Hebrew phrase. These are not trivial distortions, and we'll see that. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. It's interesting to note that the serpent's words were closer to God's words than Eve's words were. Now this should have been a huge red flag to Eve. And I'm calling her Eve. This will be her name later. Right now the text calls her the woman, but, but we know her as Eve. This should have been a huge red flag to her. Because she knew what the right words were. And the serpent is throwing the right words back at her. Which is with a negative in front of him. This, this should have been big. She should have learned right then that the serpent was not ignorant, not at all. 
The serpent didn't need just a little bit of help and understanding what God had said. Remember the help me out pedantic thing? Help me out just a little bit. He didn't need that at all. This is a rhetorical trap. She should have ended the conversation right then and there. Right then and there. But she didn't. Then in verse 5, Satan continues on, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, this is Satan at his best, or, or maybe worst, if you will. He's impugning God's motivation. He's impugning God's character. The charge is fundamentally this. God does not have your best interests in mind. That's what Satan is telling the woman. No, God doesn't really love you. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. He's, he's holding back. He's holding you back from becoming all that you have the potential to become. God doesn't want you to be everything that you have the potential to become. And by saying this, what Satan is telling the woman is that God, the Lord God, the creator of everything, is not essentially good. People have been trying that ever since. That God is not essentially good, that he doesn't have your best interests in mind. We fall into that trap even today, don't we? We know what's right to do and what's wrong to do. We know, we know that God has said we could do these things and be blessed, and if we avoid these things, we'll be blessed. And then somehow in the pit of our souls, actually in our flesh, in our old sin natures, there, there are these signals that keep coming up. Well, I wonder why he said that. You know what? Uh, I don't get why he said that. In, in fact, sometimes we'll ask, maybe I misunderstood what he said, but we really don't. But w- what it gets down to is that God doesn't want me to have any fun. I don't want to wait to heaven to have fun. I want to have some right now. And it seems to me that I'm not having any fun over here in this place where God said blessing would be, but it looks to me like they're having a lot of fun over there. So you kind of peek over there a little bit. And you realize, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go there, so I'm going to get back in my Bible and I'll read it a little bit and, and go to Bible class and call up one of my Christian friends, meet him down at Starbucks, and then they kind of hear the noise over there again. So you know what? There, there is no question about it. They're having a lot more fun than I'm having. <laughs> Something is fundamentally wrong with this picture, I'm saying. Because I thought it was all about fun. Now, God may say, listen, there wouldn't be anything about fun in the deal. He might, he might be saying that. But there's, there's, there's a lot more to it than just fun. There's contentment. There's perfect peace that passes all understanding. That's what we're promised, if we'll just do it His way. But even today, we think that there's some fundamental idea out there within our flesh, within our old sin natures, that God is not essentially good and He doesn't want the best for me. He does want the best for you. Let me illustrate this way. You want the best for your kids, don't you? And the most basic illustration I could give you is when the kids were young, just like in your family, I told kids not to play out in the street. I did that when I was a kid because cars didn't barrel down the street like they do now with with thoughtless and reckless abandon. But we did. We played ball out in the street. We set up, you know, remember how you set up the, the tin can here and a phone book over there and, you know, something else down at second base and you hit the ball in the street or you kicked it and you maybe broke a window now and then. But you, you could do that. But in, in when my kids grew up, there wasn't, that wasn't going to happen. If they wanted to play, they need to go to the park. So I said, don't play in the street. Well, why not? Because it's dangerous for you in the street. Now, does anybody that's ever been a parent or ever been a child really think that a parent would put that prohibition because they don't have the child's best interests in mind? They're just trying to be mean to that child. Of course not. Of course not. 
And I use that very simple, basic illustration to let us know God's the same way. We're just not really as smart as this. You know how little kids think that they're smarter than the rest of us? I mean, I did when I was little. You did when you were little. So how come? You know, how come? <laughs> well, because I love you, and I don't want to see you get smashed. I'd like for you to be able to walk and talk and move your arms. I love you. That's why I don't want that to be the case. So God says, I love you. I love you. Obey me. If you obey me, then you'll keep my commandments. But what Satan is doing here in verse 5, For God knows that in the day you shall eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Doesn't that sound familiar? If Isaiah 14 is indeed a reference to the prehistoric fall of Satan, and I believe it is, isn't it ironic that Satan would bring up this thing about being like God? He's trying to pull him right into the same sin that he committed. And people are like that. And the, the whole misery loves company thing, sin loves company. But I've got to tell you, it doesn't matter how many people you get sinning with you, it's still sin. And it's not going to be fulfilling. But Satan is this way. But this is his original sin, being like, want to be like God, not to imitate him. Not, not like Paul's statement in Ephesians 5, want to be imitators of God. He wanted to be God. He wanted the position of God for himself, so uh, this, is, this is quite ironic. But this is nothing less than a challenge to the integrity of God. It's a challenge to God's infinite perfections. Then in verse 6, oh, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now one, one quick note, there, there are many things in Genesis chapter 3 that, that we can't say dogmatically. I don't know where Adam was. I know people speculate, was he right there the whole time? Should he have intervened? I don't know where he was during the first part of this conversation, but he was standing, he was standing right next to her when she finally took the fruit. At least, at least we know that. We've got to be careful. We're speaking about precision in the study of the Word of God today. We have to be careful in not filling in too many blanks if the Scriptures don't fill them in for us. It makes for good, for good writing and good reading, and you sell a lot of books when you do that sometimes. But we need to be precise if we're going to say what this text says. All I, all I can tell you is by the time she takes the fruit, the man is standing next to her. It didn't take long for the temptation to achieve its goal. The fall, as we call it now, is recorded in rapid succession with a sequence of verbs. First she saw it, she took it, she ate it, she gave it, and he ate. Just one right after the, run right after another. More time is actually given to the dialogue and the tension of the event than the actual submission to temptation. When it happens, it happens really fast. You can almost see Adam and Eve at, at the time looking at each other and say, what did we just do? What just happened? And that's the way it is when we sin sometimes. You know, the, the temptation may take weeks or months. Sometimes Satan works on us for years. The Satan, the flesh, the Satan's system, all the sources of temptations. And he works on us, and he works on us, and he works on us. And then one day, we say no to God and yes to sin, and bammo, it's done. Just like that. And sometimes the results can be devastating. And I've got to tell you, what happens here 
is the single most devastating thing that has ever happened in human history, even up to this time. Nothing as devastating as this particular decision has ever occurred in the history of mankind or will occur, unless you, unless you include in the back door an individual's rejection of Jesus Christ as the solution to the problem. But this is the problem. And it happens so fast. In the ancient Near Eastern literature, it happens this way a lot. They'll build up the story, and then the, the story will unfold in, in terms of the action of the story will unfold in a very short period of time. One of my favorite authors uh, in, in today's world, uh, non, or, or fiction authors, rather, he writes historical fiction, a man named Daniel Silva. Daniel Silva is um, a brilliant writer, and, and he, he writes in a, in a way that makes you really understand the characters, you understand the plot, you've got, you understand where they are, you can just picture yourself in those places. And Silva will often take about five-sixths of the book to set things up. And, and sometimes people criticize him for that, but I love it. I mean, it's, it's like a difference between an American movie and a European movie. <laughs> I like European movies because they set things up for you better. You know the characters by the time that you get to the actual action. And, and Silva will have everything un, un, unfold perhaps in the last sixth of the book, and it's very fast and exciting. And I think he's one of the best writers out there. Well, that's, what, that's what's happening in ancient Near Eastern literature, and that's what's happening here. The majority of our passage today concerns the buildup. And then when it happens, it happens really fast. Sin can be devastating. Be careful. Now, we're going to talk about this more in future lessons, but, but we... We saw that the temptation came to the woman, to Eve. There's a lot that the New Testament will tell us about that. The New Testament says that Eve was deceived. Adam was not, which is the reason why the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 5 that it's Adam's sin that is passed down to the human race because Adam sinned knowingly and Eve was deceived. He sinned knowing full well what he was doing. It's for this reason that Adam's sin is imputed to all of us. And in case this was, is the only time you'll ever be able to be here with us, maybe you're a visitor, this, this doesn't mean that necessarily, essentially, Eve was more deceivable than Adam. Had Satan gone straight after Adam, he would have fallen too. I mean, that seems clear enough to me. There's a strategy behind that, and because of our time, we'll have to cover that in another lesson, and we plan to in the next couple of weeks. Then in verse 7, the aftermath of the first sin. There's a new paradigm. There's a new sheriff in town. There's a new paradigm now for God's interaction with his creation. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Something has changed fundamentally now. That innocence, that, that, um, that trust that, that was going on before at, at the end of chapter 2 and verse 25, it's not that way anymore. This crafty servant has brought them down to his level, and they attempt their own solution to the problem. You'll see that here. We'll expound upon it in later lessons. They, they realized they had a problem, so they, they took action, as human beings often do, because we don't want to just sit by idly and do nothing, do we? So they made clothes for themselves. Later on, we're going to see that that wasn't sufficient, that that wasn't going to solve the problem, that it wasn't just a self-esteem issue, 
It wasn't just a physical nakedness issue. There's a whole lot more to it than that. A lot more to it. Alan Ross, the Old Testament scholar, writes, the results, of course, were anticlimactic. Their eyes were open, but the promise of divine enlightenment did not come about. What was right before was now very wrong. They knew more, but the additional knowledge was evil. They saw more, but what they saw now, they spoiled by seeing. Mistrust and alienation replaced the security and the intimacy that they had enjoyed. Well, what can we learn from the first seven verses of perhaps, perhaps the most important chapter in the Bible? At least certainly one of them. What can we learn from this today? Well, above all, I want you to remember this, that a precise knowledge, a precise knowledge of the Word of God and a resolute trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory in this life. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your divine self-disclosure to us that we find primarily in your word in terms of special revelation. Father, you've been so gracious to reveal yourself to us. Help us to be committed to handling your divine self-disclosure that we find in the scriptures carefully, thoughtfully, with precision. Father, help us to be precise in our study of the word. Help us to be precise in our application of that study and the way that it works in our lives. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who who is is, is come in and they, they don't know Jesus Christ, perhaps we've assumed too much today. I, I do pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their lives right now, would work on their soul right now, right this moment, to convict them of a need. And that need is so much more than just a negative self-esteem. Father, we have, we have rebelled against you. From our original parents, even to the, the current time, we thank you that Jesus Christ was provided to die in our place, to die in our place when we were his enemies. We thank you that you loved us so much that that occurred. And I thank you that you loved the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Father, if there's someone here today that's in that situation, I do pray that the Holy Spirit would make these things crystal clear to them, that their salvation can be achieved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And for the rest of us, Father, help us to be motivated. Every day that you give us breath on this earth to be in your word and to study it with precision. It is a firm foundation, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.